The book of Judges this evening, Judges chapter 1. The book of Judges is a continuation of the historical account of the children of Israel um, from continuing from the book of Genesis and then right through the previous book, the book of Joshua. But the similarity between Joshua and Judges ends in that it shares the common theme of Jewish history. The book of Joshua is a wonderful and exciting book really for the child of God to read. It's a story about victory after victory. There are a couple of defeats recorded there in the book, but those defeats were uh, readily recognized and acknowledged by the children of Israel. They got things situated and moved on to victory after victory in the conquer of the promised land. And the book of Joshua really teaches us in our relationship with the Lord and in our service to Him that victory comes through just a simple faith in Him and a simple obedience to God's commandments. As we just simply trust Him and we, one of the greatest ways that we have of demonstrating our trust toward the Lord is just to simply obey His Word what His Word tells us to do in any given situation, whatever the circumstances might look like or what the results of obeying His Word might, you know, we might think that it might turn into in our, in our minds to just manifest our faith through simple obedience. Now, in contrast to the book of Judges, which was a book of, of victory after victory, the conquering and conquest, the general conquest of the promised land, the book of Judges is very, very different in that it is a record of continual failure. And what it illustrates for us is the disaster that occurs, not just among, you know, the pagan world or the anti-God world uh, because of disobedience to the Lord, but it, it teaches us of the disaster that occurs even among God's people, maybe especially among God's people, if we choose to live a life of compromise and disobedience to His Word, that it always leads to defeat and it always leads to bondage. And Judges gra illustrates this so graphically, uh, this uh, whole point of it, of what happens when God's people choose to live that life of compromise and, and disobedience and what a disaster it turns into. You read the book of Judges all the way to the end and you just think, these can't be God's people. How do God's people end up cutting people up and sending them into all the different tribes of Israel? I mean, you just... I love, I love what I heard William McDonald say many years ago. He said... He said, each one of our hearts is worse than anything we say and anything we do. And it's true. One of the most wonderful things about obedience to God's Word throughout our pilgrimage until the day we go to be with the Lord, we get a new body. We can, I mean, we're done with this sin, the pull of sin. We're done with the sin nature in us, all those kinds of things. 
And uh, one of the great things about just simply obeying God until, until that day and the power of the Holy Spirit is that all that stuff that's inside of my heart tonight apart from the Lord and is in your heart tonight because of the Lord it never see, needs to see the light of day. And obedience allows that to be true related to our lives. There's a historical cycle that's repeated over and over again in the book and it is known as the cycle of sin. And the cycle or the pattern goes something like this. First, the people would rebel against God's word. And this is, this is a little bit different than you're going along, you wake up in the morning and you're determined, you know, again, the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with God and obey Him and, you know, you get to about 11.30 in the morning and, you know, some bad attitude creeps up in your heart and you yell at somebody. I mean, we're talking about, in this we're talking about deliberate, willful disobedience and rebellion to God's Word. They're a little bit, little bit different. So first, God's people would rebel against His Word and uh, just deliberately reject his commandments, sin against his commandments, and uh, his definitions of right and wrong. That would then lead, as it always does, to bondage. And God would then allow them to be defeated by one of the nations that was surrounding them who would take them into bondage. A period of time later, usually years, <laughs> the children of Israel would grow tired of the oppression of their enemies, they would turn back to God and cry out for God to supply them with a deliverer to deliver them from the bondage of, uh, of their enemies. The Lord would then say, good to hear from you under any circumstances. So nice to hear your voice again. And the Lord would then graciously raise up a deliverer and a judge who would then deliver them of their oppressors. And there are twelve judges in all. And then the nation of Israel would obey the Lord for a period of time, usually during the lifetime of the judge that God had used them to, uh, to free them. But then they would get fat and sassy spiritually again, begin to think that they're smarter than God again, begin to deliberately disobey His Word again, and the cycle would begin all over again in the bondage and, and, and all. And sin really does have a cycle, doesn't it? And this cycle of sin is repeated seven times in the book of Judges, which is kind of depressing. But while the book is depressing in some ways, it's really an important one because this same cycle of sin remains very common in God's people today, that is, in Christians, where a Christian begins to willfully, deliberately disobey God's commandments. Then what happens? Inevitably what happens is before long they find themselves in bondage to the sin that obedience was intended to keep them free of. And then after a while, they become disgusted with what that sin has reduced their life to. So they cry out to God for deliverance. And the Lord says, Hi, it's good to hear from you again. And the Lord sends his deliverer and this covenant of, in Christ sends His Holy Spirit to deliver us from 
uh, the bondage. The Lord cleans them all up again. They walk with the Lord for a time, and then they get fat and sassy again spiritually, begin to think that they're smarter than God, begin to think that they can reintroduce compromise and disobedience into their life, and it won't hurt them this time. This time, they'll really keep it compartmentalized and keep it under control. And then what ends up, Just like God's Word says, they end up in bondage to sin once again, and on and on uh, the whole cycle goes. And I think that really every Christian recognizes this cycle to one degree or another. But for many Christians, this represents their Christian life. And that may be some of us in this room tonight. And one of the reasons that the book of Judges is so valuable to us is it does a couple of things. Number one, it warns those who are Christians from ever entering into this cycle. It's a disaster, as we'll see one chapter after another is a disaster. So it warns those who have never stepped their toe into the cycle to never do it. There's no future in it. Don't learn the hard way. You don't need to learn it firsthand. You can learn it from the children of Israel, and their history for 350 years. The second thing that it does, and this is very, very important, is it teaches those who are in the cycle, those who look and say, that's my Christian life. That's all my Christian life has ever been, is that cycle. It's just a matter of how long am I in that place of freedom when God delivers me before I jump into it again. And what it does for that Christian is it gives us very needed instruction for how to break the cycle and and get out of it and live a different kind of life. Jesus, I don't say this to condemn anyone, but I don't mind conviction and I don't mind preaching to my own heart. Jesus did not die on the cross for me to live that kind of life, that cycle of sin. He didn't go through all of that for me to to live that inferior of a life in this world. He died on the cross, was buried, rose again in order for us to live a quality of life that's greater than anything else in the world, not some kind of a religious version of paganism. And, and so it's valuable this, this way. Now, essentially, the breaking of this cycle in any Christian's life is to return to the things that made them victorious in uh, the book of Joshua. And, and that is to return to giving the Word of God a very major and weighty place in our lives. You read the book of Judges from one end to the other. I mean, there is virtually no attention given to the Word of God by the children of Israel during that 350 years of their history. And I know sometimes pastors can sound like, well, of course that's what they're, you know, paid to do or that's what they're called to do is to tell us to always be reading the Word of God. But we need to be reading the Word of God. Because the Word of God does in our lives what nothing else does in, in, in our lives. One of the things it does is it washes us. It gives us perspective. It reminds us of what the definition of right and wrong is and good and bad is. And I need to be reminded uh, of that. And so it it does these needed things in our lives. And especially as the culture is becoming more and more debased all around us. 
Two of the great verses of the book of, of Judges is that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. I think it's in chapter 2. And then I think it's in chapter 21. It talks about every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So here you have God's people doing what was right in their own eyes. God looks at the same thing and calls it evil. That's how you get away from the Word of God, and that's how goofed up we can get as it relates to our definitions of right and wrong and evil and good. And that's for any of us. And so the importance, break this cycle for the Word of God to have a major place in each one of our lives. And then number two, to follow our Joshua very, very closely. And our Joshua is Jesus. And then number three, to live by faith. That is to obey God's Word even when it requires faith. And then to watch God bless it. I, I, know, the, I know the Bible is a very deep book. And I know that you can, there's lots of different sermons, and I've preached some of them on the victorious Christian life and seven steps for this and four steps for that and 12 steps for breaking the cycle of sin and all these kinds of things. And they're all great. The Bible is full of wonderful things in that way. But all I really need to be is born again, be a child of God. And if in the, I'm in that cycle of sin than to really sincerely want to be out of that cycle of sin and to cry out to God and ask Him for deliverance and then whatever is required of His Holy Spirit, whether it's chastening, whether it's refining, whatever it is of His Holy Spirit, then to keep us out of it, then He will do that. Sometimes we can look at it and say, well, you know, I'm, I have this cycle of sin in my life or I haven't discovered the victorious Christian life because I'm not knowledgeable enough about the Scriptures. There are people that are in this cycle of sin and they've uh, known of the Lord or been born again for 50 years. There are people that live a victorious Christian life who live in huts in different places of the world and they have never owned a Bible. All they've heard is the verses that have been read to them and taught to them in Bible studies, and yet they live it. My point being is this, is we've got a God who loves us and a God who knows us very, very well, and He knows a sincere cry to Him for deliverance. He'll recognize it in our lives, and, and He will deliver us and bring us into the victorious Christian life. We can spend all of our lives reading dozens of books on the victorious Christian life. And I recommend it. I don't discourage it at all. But where it really breaks through is just to realize I'm in a relationship with God, a God who loves me, a God who has the power to pull me out of this, a God who is wise and I ought to obey His Word in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we will break out. So when someone like me gets up and says, hey, this cycle of sin, and somebody, their whole Christian life has been the cycle of sin, and they just hear, well, you need to give the Word of God, it's due influence in your life, stay close to Jesus, our Joshua, and live by faith, that is, obey God's Word, whatever it, it says, in whatever circumstance, and a person just clicks off. How simplistic can that person be? I mean, how simplistic can that pastor be? He must know nothing of the cycle of sin. Everyone knows something of the cycle of sin. Nobody's ignorant related to that. But the victory is found 
in, in these things. I think, again, that this book is also very helpful because it, it does teach the younger person, it teaches younger Christians firsthand the consequences of a life of compromise to an absolute obedience to God's Word. And, uh, and you get to see it in 3D when we read this book and say, I never want to do that. I never want to be in the middle of it. And so it's effective that way. The book of Judges covers a period of about 325 years between the time of the death of Joshua until we will get into the book tonight, sometime before next Resurrection Sunday. So it covers a period of about 325 years between the time of the death of Joshua until the time of the establishment of the kings in the history of the nation of Israel. We know that it was written at some time between uh, the first king of Israel and the second king uh, of, of Israel. Sometime right before the first king, that is Saul, and, and it was finished sometime before David became uh, king, the second king of Israel, because throughout the book we're told about the time of Judges that in, this, in those days Israel had no king. And so all these events had to be written and recorded prior to, to Saul becoming the first king. But then we're also told uh, in the uh, book in chapter 1, verse 21, that it was written prior to the conquest of the city of, of Jerusalem, <clears throat> excuse me, and David made the conquest of the city of Jerusalem one of the first things of his being a king and uh, making it the capital of Israel. So it had to happen in that narrow window. Most people believe that Samuel wrote the book because he was alive at that time and Samuel could rightly be uh, considered the final judge of the nation uh, of of Israel and so we know scripturally that Samuel was a writer and so it wouldn't be beyond the Holy Spirit to use him uh, for that so let's get into the book now and uh, chapters 1 and 2 are basically an introduction for how the children of Israel got got into the mess they got into they were sailing smooth sailing under Joshua things were going great They've conquered the land. They've broken the back of, of their enemies. And, and uh, uh, now all that's required is for these individual tribes to go into the land that's been allotted to them, for them to go in and wipe out the enemies that are in these different allotments of, of the tribes and uh, clean up that opposition and move forward. And yet somehow at this moment in time in their history, they stumble very, very uh, Badly. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Good sign. So they begin early on, and they are eager to drive the Canaanites out of their land. And so they seek the Lord. Okay, how do you want to go about this? Which tribe do you want to launch first? And the Lord uh, communicated to them somehow, probably through the high priest, and uh, maybe a prophecy, maybe through the Urim and the Thummim. And the Lord communicated, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land 
into his hand. And remember Judah when we put all those map, the map up on the screen here and their allotment in the land was down in the south towards uh, Jerusalem. And so he chooses Judah. They're going to drive out the Canaanites in the south first. And so Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. So he aligns himself with the tribe of Simeon and that was kind of a natural thing for him to do because the tribe of Simeon and the tribe of Judah were very close to one another in terms of their allotments. They were also uh, the patriarchs, uh, Simeon and Judah, who the sons of of Jacob. They were uh, both born uh, to the same biological father and mother, and that is Jacob and Leah. So they had this kind of blood tie. And so J- uh, Judah says, why don't you join me, Simeon, in this conquest? The problem is, is God did not say Judah and Simeon. He told Judah, Judah, I want you to do this. And Judah decides, well, we probably can't do it on our own. We're already seeing an absence of faith in their lives. And so they they do something beyond what God has said, and now they're going to align themselves with Simeon um, in order uh, to do it. And then Judah, as we begin to read about their victories, Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. Now, that's a huge victory. You imagine waking up one morning, picking up the Modesto B, and reading about 10,000 dead somewhere in a battle. We're, we are not used, uh, not used to for a long time th- that kind of a casualty count in one battle uh, anywhere in the world. So it's been decades since we've known that. So this was a, a very, very great battle and, and a very, very uh, great victory for the children of Israel in defeating the men at uh, Bezek. And so they defeat these 10,000 soldiers and they found Adonai Bezek. Uh, this is uh, Adonai means Lord. And so Lord Bezek, that was the name of, of the man. Lord, it can also mean King uh, Bezek. So he was the Lord of Bezek. He was the King of Bezek. So they found him in Bezek and they fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And then Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him. They caught him and then they cut off his thumbs and his toes. And so um, here, interesting thing to do and uh, what they would do when they would capture a king and had defeated a king and cap- cutting off his thumbs basically they were making it impossible for him to ever wage war again you, can't care- you cannot hold a sword without, a, uh, without thumbs this opposable digit here and uh, you cannot run and you cannot plant yourself in a field of battle and be stable without big toes. And so basically this was a way in the ancient world of incapacitating a defeated enemy for a war or for further battle, but without killing them. And so that's exactly what they did. Now the problem with this is that God had not commanded them to disable their enemies. God had commanded them to utterly destroy their enemies. 
So again we see this compromise. Here's the interesting thing. We can sit here tonight as Christians and the whole thing of bringing Simeon in alongside Judah when God said not to do that, we can look at that and say, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. That's not a big deal. That's the beginning of big problems. We can look at this where instead of destroying Adonai Bezek as God had called them to do, we can look and say, well, what's the difference? They incapacitated them, but it's a difference to God. God told them that they would utterly destroy their enemies, and there are reasons for God's commandments that sometimes He never tells us. The dangerous thing here beyond God's commandments is it's revealing an attitude on their part toward the Word of God, and that is you obey what you like to obey. And then what you don't like or you don't agree with or what is hard for you to do, you are simply free to disregard that and then make up your own rules instead of obeying God's. That's the dangerous thing that's happening here is that attitude is now becoming a part of the leadership in the tribe of Judah. It begins small. That's why the Bible says the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. Nobody goes out and typically no one goes out and just does this, you know, heinous thing or goes out on a sin binge or whatever overnight. You know, they're walking intimately with God, you know, and like Abraham all the way till 6 o'clock one night and then 6.01 they decide to go out and party like crazy in Modesto. It never happens that way. There's a long period of backsliding in the heart and, and redefining an attitude toward the Word of God and God's commandments. And then after a while, it can no, that backslidden heart can no longer be hidden. It explodes outwardly into real life. My point is this, is that if any of us sit here tonight and we look and say, Kyle, you are making a mountain out of a molehill over their disobedience here, then that's something you have to repent of. I have many things I have to repent of, but it's not making a mountain out of a molehill here because that attitude towards God's Word, I can disregard it when I want, I can replace it with my own wisdom that I want, it will never stay as a small thing. It will never stay with just cutting off thumbs and cutting off toes. It will always grow into larger areas of our life as it will with the tribe of Judah and ultimately the tribe will go into bondage. The whole tribe will go into bondage to the very people they were called to utterly drive out. The parallel is our enemy in this Christian life is the flesh. And the Bible says to mortify the deeds of the flesh. It doesn't say cut off its big toes and its thumbs. My flesh is strong enough. If I want to leave it around in its desires and I don't want to uh, cold-blooded murder it, which is what the Bible actually says, and you do it with the sword of the Spirit and you starve it to death by not giving it what it wants to have come into the eye gate and the ear gate and, and all. So we're not to show any mercy to our flesh. Otherwise, you come and you find me six months down the road, two years down the road, and you say, didn't that guy used to pastor at Calvary Chapel? Can you believe what he's doing today? 
And it all starts with this little thing where it's not the outward action, it's the attitude, I'm smarter than God, I'll obey where I want, I'll disobey where I I don't uh, want to obey Him. And that's what's going on here. And it's big trouble. Now, Adonai Bezek, you'd think, hey, what's it? He'd have some kind of a big uh, beef over the fact that they've cut off his his, uh, thumbs and his toes, but they didn't. He said 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes uh, cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done to these 70, so God has repaid me. So he, uh, obviously he had been a great warrior, had defeated 70 different kings in battle, and then shown them this same uh, action in defeating them, and then brought them back to his kind of castle or his headquarters or whatever, and for the rest of their life they ate whatever was left over from the the palace meals. And uh, so he said, listen, I I know all about this thing. God's repaid it to me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. And so it gives us an idea of how great this defeat of Bezek was, that they could defeat, kill 10,000 soldiers and then defeat a king that had already defeated 70 uh, kings himself. God was with them, uh, though a trend has already begun in their lives. Now the children of Judah fought against uh, Jerusalem and they took it and they struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Evidently, the city of Jerusalem was not going to come under full Jewish control until the time of David, again about 325 years later. So evidently, they defeated the city of Jerusalem and uh, burned it down, but did not occupy it, continued on in their uh, conquest of the land, and the Jebusites came back in and reestablished themselves and the site. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowlands. And then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, and they killed Shishai. This is a terrible name for a man. Ahiman and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. And then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And so she must have been very attractive for someone to be willing to conquer a city for her. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's uh, younger brother, uh, took it. And so uh, Caleb gave him his daughter, Aksa, as wife. And we read about this in Joshua uh, chapter 15. And now it happened when she came to him following their marriage. Uh, she comes to her father and, uh, and uh, comes to uh, Othniel, urges him to accompany her to ask her father for uh, a, a favor and uh, so she comes to him to ask for a field she dismounted from her donkey and uh, sign of respect Caleb said to her what do you wish he then it's an she's coming for something you know and so he, he knows that 
And so she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me land in the south, which is an arid part of, of Israel. Give me also springs of water. And so she needed, wanted a water source to go with the land that he had given to them as a wedding present. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And so really a wonderful dad and looking out for his, the next generation and his family. Now, it's really interesting here that Caleb's... Um, victory in, in conquering uh, Kirjath Sefer is recorded because again we read about it in Joshua chapter 15 and then the Holy Spirit kind of puts this right in the middle of chapter 1 and you can wonder what in the world is this about well one of the reasons it's right in this place is that he was part of the tribe of Judah so it would be natural that they would describe uh, his conquest of his portion of the land while the conquest of the land by Judah is being described but I think the greater reason that uh, Caleb is reintroduced and, and brought to our attention in this book is that we're going to see from this point on through the rest of the chapter, it is just a miserable, miserable uh, line after line after line of the disobedience of the tribes of Israel to fully obey the Lord. And to me, it's almost like the Lord reintroduces Caleb into the middle of all of this to say, listen, before we get into all of this defeat after defeat or after defeat or failure after failure after failure, I want to introduce you to someone who wholeheartedly worshipped the Lord and wholeheartedly obeyed the Word of God. Here's the problem. If we go through the rest of the chapter, and we will, as we, go, as we go through that and we read about the defeat one tribe after another, they did not fully drive out, they did not fully drive out, they did not fully drive out, there would be that tendency in our hearts to think, well, God called them to an impossible task. And, uh, and so, you know, listen, God sets this high standard in His Word, but nobody can really keep it. You kind of just do the best that you can, and then He accepts that. But He doesn't accept that. And He puts Caleb in here, and Caleb fully and wholly followed the Lord, and the Lord puts it in as an example of someone that, that His Word can be obeyed 100% and fully. I really appreciate the Caleb's that uh, God puts into the body of Christ and uh, into uh, the world today, and, and I think that they can sometimes uh, get a little bit of flack uh, on, on things. And I think that sometimes there's a tendency where um, a Caleb, because a Caleb keeps God's people from the self-deception of saying, well, um, you know, you can't really live this thing full on and, and you, you, you can't o o obey this. This is just a, just a nice high bar. We need to aim at it, but it doesn't matter whether you hit it or, or not. And Caleb comes along, and again, as I said, he, he hits it, hits the home run, hits the ball every single time, and teaches us that we can do that. And I think that there's a tendency that can occur in our thinking that Caleb's are just this kind of a special uh, second kind of attitude that we can have about Caleb's when we do see Christians who are living the victorious Christian life is the tendency can be to look at Caleb and to look at them and say, well, they're a, they're a special kind of person. We're not all like that. 
if he had my personality, and if he was tempted towards sin the way that I'm tempted towards sin, if he had my childhood instead of the childhood he had, then he wouldn't be living the victorious Christian. And we begin to make excuses for ourselves for living below obedience to the Word, uh, word of God. I think the fact of the matter is that anywhere you see someone living even remotely a victorious Christian life, that they are doing so at a great personal price, a great joy, but a great personal price. They are, they are facing all of the temptations that all of the rest of us do. They're facing all of the same hardships and obstacles that all of the rest of us are, but they are making different choices in the face of those things. And so the Caleb's that are all around us, where we see them walking in that kind of way, they're intended to bring conviction into our hearts if we've become lukewarm or we've become partially obedient to the Lord. And I think there's a lack of conviction in the body of Christ today at some degree that needs to be there. I'm thankful for every single Caleb in the body of Christ, whether they're male or whether they're female, those ones that you look at and they stir you on by their lives. They don't have to preach a sermon, but they stir us to greatness by their lives and a desire to live a little more fully for God than we've already experienced. And it's a great thing. And then the second thing that they do, and that is to bring a needed conviction, a needed rebuke to the lukewarm Christian or the Christian who has settled into a life of disobedience and without being jarred out of that will stay in that condition all the way to the day of their death. And Caleb's wake us up to the danger of that. Now the children of uh, the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, they went up from the city of Palms, which is Jericho, with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near uh, Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And so the Kenites, the children of Israel, had a long history with them. Remember Moses' um, his wife, uh, her descendants were part of the Kenites and Jethro, her father, and all of these things. And uh, so prior to this um, conquest of the land, the Kenites are absorbed into the tribe of Judah. And Judah then went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited uh, uh, Zephath and utterly destroyed it. And so the name of the city was called Hormah. And also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon and its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So these uh, coastal cities of of the Philistines. And so the Lord was with Judah and they drove out uh, the mountaineers, the enemy that were in the mountains, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And here is the beginning of the failure. Heads up related to verse 19. This is where everything goes bad and we need to take notice of it as it relates to our own lives. 
They drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but not the inhabitants of the lowlands because they had chariots of, of iron. And so here we have an incomplete obedience, a partial obedience, which again is disobedience. And that life brings no pleasure to the Lord, and he takes note of it. The Christian who lives like this 80-20 thing with God, I'm not talking about trying real hard and stumbling and learning from our sin and getting up and moving forward. We're talking about deliberate, where someone settles into their Christian life where they're 80% obedient to the Lord, but they are in 20% of their life deliberately disobedient to the Lord. The Lord takes note of that and it, it displeases him and even further it sets us up to be taken captive uh, by the sin that we are protecting with our disobedience later in, in our lives. It's that, that tendency and it's a temptation that we all have as Christians and that is to reach a place in our Christian life where we say this is as far as I want to go in obeying God. I don't want to obey him any further than this. I want to watch all those movies. I want to go all those places. I want to listen to all that music. I won't kill anybody. But I don't want to obey this all the way. And so I, I just settle in and say, this is the Christian walk that I want, and God's just going to have to make do with an 80-20 on this thing. And it happens all of the time. And where people will back off from obeying the Lord, as soon as obeying the Lord involves sacrifice, as soon as it costs me something to be able to, 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 to obey Him, then I am out and we're tempted with that as Christians. But it's still no excuse for disobeying God's word. The Lord had specifically warned the children of Israel that they would face chariots in their conquest of the land, but that he would defeat those chariots in his power and give them the victory anyway. The Lord did not promise the tribe of Judah or the children of Israel, you will never, ever face a chariot in life. You will never, ever face an overwhelming uh, circumstance in life. You will never face a situation where the odds are overwhelmingly against you or where your enemy is fabulously better equipped in the natural than you are. God never gave them that promise. He said, you will face chariots, but I'm with you, and I will defeat those chariots, and, and whatever needs to come from me in order for that army aligned with those chariots to be wiped out, I will do it. I will never allow a chariot to make a liar out of me. I'll keep my promises. You obey me. Step out in faith and watch it. God gave them that promise. I've elaborated on it. But the promise is in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. They could have done it if they had only stepped out in faith in God's Word. The importance 
of faith in the Christian life. The importance of always taking steps of faith in the Christian life. And faith is not guessing what God's will is, taking a pot shot at it, and then taking a blind leap into the dark. Here's how faith is in the Bible. Faith is knowing the will of God from His Word. And where faith comes in is, will I obey God's commandment in the face of these circumstances? Faith is not blind. Faith is very well aware of what's going on around it. But faith is, will I obey the Lord despite what the circumstance uh, is? And if they had done that, then God would have been able to bring His greatness alongside and, and they would have had the, the victory there. What if all of God's people disregarded God's commands as soon as the situation seemed impossible? Well, how many of us would be obeying the Lord? Where would we see one victorious Christian life? The body of Christ, anywhere in the whole world. So this is a leaven that's being introduced now among the children of Israel that's very, very dangerous. And so we have to keep that standard very, very high about obeying the Word of God, not making any alliance with our enemies, with our flesh, or with the devil, or with the world. And so this is where they came to. They would, could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said, and then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. And then it moves on to the other tribes. But the children of Benjamin did not, and I, and I, want, you to, I want you to notice in verse 19, uh, could not, and then circle in your mind these words, drive out. That's what God called them to do. Drive these people out. The Lord had waited over 400 years to drive these people out and to destroy them in the land of Canaan. 400 years earlier, God had spoken to His children and said, the fullness of the sins of the Amorites is not yet full, so you can't go into the promised land and dispossess it of the, the people that are there. The land has been wicked on the part of the Canaanites and the part of all these other people. Finally, the Amorites become as wicked as everyone else so that God can look at it and say, my judgment to drive all of these people out at this point in time is an absolutely righteous judgment. It is, it is a cancer in human history what these people brought into God's world. God said, I want them removed. I want them destroyed. I want them to be driven out. But the children of Benjamin, verse 21, underline it in your mind, did not drive out. The force of it I like. Drive out. That's what they'd been called to do. They did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, and so the Jebusites uh, dwelt with the children of Benjamin um, in uh, Jerusalem to this day. And so the failure 
on, on the part of, uh, of them to do that. And again, it's verse 21 that makes us realize that this book was written before Jerusalem was taken by David because at this point in time it was still under the control of the Jebusites. And the house of Joseph, and it speaks specifically of Manasseh, we'll see down in verse 27. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And so the house of Joseph went, uh, sent men to spy out Bethel, and the name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city in order to save his neck, and they gained access to the city, struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man go and let the man and all of his family go, and the man then went into the land of the Hittites, built a city, called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. God said, wipe him out. So you let this guy escape the city of Luz and then go build another city of Luz in another part of the land. So they're just not getting the seriousness of obedience to the Lord. However, Manasseh, speaking of the house of Joseph, again, did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages, or Ta'anach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. That's the reason why. The determination of the Canaanites to remain in the land was greater than the determination of God's people to obey His Word. You ever, have a, ever had a sin in your life determined not to leave? <laughs> Please, somebody say yes. Okay, very good. I thought, wow, you guys all should be in heaven already. Of course, we all understand what that is. So, I mean, if we all backed off from the sin that wants to remain in our lives, and that's what this is all a picture of for us as Christians, if we backed off from every sin in our life that said, uh-uh, not going, not going, I'll tell you, get me my spinach. <laughs> That's not really there in the Bible, but I mean, it's, it's an illustration. But it takes that. Sometimes we come to God and we say, God, you know, listen, if you want this to be out of my life, you know, it's been a part of my life for quite a while and everything, and if, I, I just want you to take it out in one second. But if, it, but if He doesn't, sometimes the Lord will take these gigantic bondages out of our lives instantly as a, as a miracle. And then at times He leaves these other things in our lives so that we will appropriate who and what we are in Christ Jesus to resist them on a daily basis in order to make us into a particular kind of saint that is a good influence in this world. And, and so sometimes this, this kind of thing happens. If every Christian just let every sin continue to abide in our lives just because it doesn't want to go, what's the body of Christ going to look like in six weeks? 
And so this is what, what they do. The Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land, so they said, all right, what can we do about that? But it was a, it was a failure on the part of their determination. Their determination should have been greater to obey God than any determination by the Canaanites to remain in the land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute and, uh, but did not completely drive them out. And so they come to a place where they had the ability to drive the Canaanites out and they decided not to do that. We'll force them into tribute. In other words, um, boy... If we can use them for slave labor, this is the deal where somebody comes along, a businessman, this is the temptation that the businessmen face, and that is, wow, if I disobey God in this area, we could make a lot of money. We could t I mean, all I've got to do is take that sin and put it under tribute rather than driving it out of my life. And, and, but what they, what they don't realize, is, is, is the children of Israel here, is they put them under tribute, but one day everything's going to turn around, and it's what sin does in our lives, and pretty soon the Canaanites will be dominating the children of Israel. And so they said, what we'll do for financial reasons, it's, it's good, it's cheap labor, we'll, we'll put them to tribute. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the uh, Canaanites dwelt in Gezer uh, among them, and they were evidently comfortable with it. So it's like, okay, that's, that's no big deal now. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of uh, Nahalo, so the Canaanites dwelt among them, and they were put under tribute. Let's just keep them around. It's good for the tax base. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko for the inhabitant, uh, or the inhabitants of Sidon or of uh, Ahlab, Akzib, uh, Helba, Aphek, or Rehob. And so the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beshemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Bethshemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced, you think it couldn't get any worse, and the Amorites forced the children of the tribe of Dan into the mountains, <laughs> for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres and Aijalon and uh, Labim. There we go. There's a lot of, a lot of syllables in that one. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the act, uh, ascent of Akrabim from Selah and Upward. And so how embarrassing. Here's the uh, children of Dan. They would rather relocate than to find, uh, fight the, uh, for its claim of the land. And so we won't move any further than that tonight because we want to enjoy communion this evening. But this really begins to set the stage for um, where uh, the book of Judges is going to go. Now, 
at this moment in time, you end chapter 1, and it's like, okay, all these tribes are kind of in their land. They're getting along with all these enemies and everything like that, and everybody seems to be, you know, okay with it and everything. And, and for a window in time, it all looks like, wow, there, there was no need to be all crazy and radical and obeying God's Word to a T. This is working out pretty good. You satisfied with it? I'm satisfied with it. But it's not the end of the story. And they, they are ultimately going to come into bondage to every one of these groups that they let live. And the picture is for us is that we will, I don't care who you are, I don't care how much of the Bible we know, I don't care how much history with God we have, we will ultimately go into bondage to any sin we allow the, to see the light of day in our lives because of willful disobedience. You see it replayed over and over and over again. I'm smarter than this. I'm bigger than this. I can keep it compartmentalized. I can keep it uh, under control. This area of my life will be okay. The problem isn't the individual sin, though, that the person is engaged in. The problem is their attitude toward God and obedience to God's Word, and that will never stay confined to one small area. One small area is enough to destroy us. I could tell you stories from being in this town from 1985 of people that walk with God like you can't believe but they protected some sin in their lives and it brought them all down and the same thing would be true of me if I allow that to be the case and true of us so here it all looks like is as it always does in the early stages of things. Man, God's just being so radical, being so crazy, setting that standard so high. You can get along without that, but that's never the end of the story. God knows our enemies better than we know our enemies. He knows sin better than we know sin. And the importance of completely driving it out of 